chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. reading a fairly lengthy passage this evening so that we might see it, something in its context, though really um, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 really need the uh, first eight chapters read carefully so that you see what uh, Paul builds up to. The context here really is not just a verse before or a verse after, but uh, a very powerful and uh, somewhat complex argument that uh, Paul builds almost from the first chapter of his epistle. But uh, that being said, we'll read 16 verses this evening in the hopes of uh, catching something of the flavor of what's being said here. I suppose if I uh, were going to try to give us a little more background, a little uh, build up to the argument tonight say that Paul introduces his letter in chapter 1 telling us after his greetings about the power of the gospel and the terrible lost condition of the Gentiles. Following in chapter 2, he makes the Jews know and understand that they are lost as well and in desperate need of the power of the gospel, just like the Gentiles. That continues into chapter 3 and then he gives us the glorious, glorious exposition of the gospel where he tells us about our lost state and then the glorious work of Christ as God sets him forth to be our propitiation and that we are saved by faith apart from the works of the law. Chapter 4, he tells us this is nothing new. This is exactly what God has always done in the salvation of his people, citing both Abraham and David as the examples. In chapter 5, he speaks of the glorious love of the Spirit, and then he tells us in the latter part of that chapter how sin entered and death began to reign over all men. In chapter 6, he tells us of the glorious union that we have in Christ, symbolized in baptism, and that we are no longer under the power of death, but we've been made free in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 7, he speaks of the relationship of the justified man to the law of God. Because he knows that there are those who are going to say, all right, Paul, then what about God's law? In chapter 8, he goes into the glories of our being set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that this, this is uh, the hope of God's children, that they are truly the sons of God. The day is coming when they will be glorious, gloriously manifest with the Lord Jesus Christ. That all those that are justified walk with Christ in union with Him. And that the day will come when that wonderful salvation that we have, which is purposed before the foundation of the world, will come to its glorious fruition in our being uh, glorified with the, with the Son of God. And finally... Paul just explodes in praise. Nobody can separate us from this great love. Now, having pointed out, then, that this was God's sovereign and eternal purpose, Paul knows that there would be those who would say, well, all this sounds good, but what about the Jews? Now, they were God's people, Paul, and this, all this stuff that you're talking about and bringing in the Gentiles and people only being saved by grace through faith, uh, what about the Jews? 
And at this point, Paul gives us uh, a remarkable exposition of God's sovereignty. Chapter 9, after speaking of this infinitely glorious love of Christ, he says in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. This is powerful. Paul can, inspired of the Holy Spirit, saying, I'm bearing witness. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever Amen not as though the word of God has taken none effect now why does he say that? Because he just speaks of this glorious nation. And yet he has spent a great deal of the prior chapters saying, Look, you Jews, in and of yourselves, you're just as lost as the Gentiles. You need Christ. What would, what would the obvious question be? Well, I don't get this, Paul. If they were God's chosen people, why are you telling them they need salvation? And and what about them? Where are they here now in history? How does all this apply to them? He says, well, it's not as though the word of God has taken none effect. Because you might get that. You might be thinking that from some of the things that I've said. I've said some strong things against the Jews. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now, what kind of double talk is that? Well, he's saying, not everybody in the nation, the physical nation of Israel, is God's true Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, meaning the physical descendants, are they all children, meaning those who have faith in God. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Isaac was the son of the promise. God told Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. And Abraham ran ahead of him and spawned Ishmael. The Lord had to come and correct Abraham and tell him, No, Ishmael's not the one. Isaac is the one. He's the child of promise. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, now he explains, they which are the children of the flesh, just the earthly descendants, these are not the children of God. In other words, genetics don't open the door to heaven. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. He quotes from the Old Testament, God's promise to give Sarah a son. 
And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now, why is, what's that question about? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, Paul is laying out here very powerfully and profoundly God's sovereign purpose to save whom he will. And that his promise is all bound up. <clears throat> and uh, excuse me, salvation is ultimately all bound up with the promise that came through Isaac. And just because someone was a literal Jew did not mean that they were a spiritual Jew. Just because they were literal Israel and a descendant of Abraham, they were not necessarily one of God's true children. And of course there would be those that would say, oh, that's not fair. Wait a minute. You mean God's the one who's decided this? This is Paul's point, by the way. And that's why he knows there will be those that would say, Wait, God's not righteous to do a thing like that. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid! For he saith, and this is remarkable, brethren, inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul does not go into a, a really long uh, explanation to try to say, well now, you know, I don't want anybody's feelings to be hurt. And I don't want anybody to get upset here because we have slightly different doctrine than perhaps you've understood or are used to. He says, no, listen to this. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, Paul says, he concludes from this, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For those of you who have the question to Paul, well, what about Israel? He's saying, yes, God made some promises to Israel. But those were ultimately directed toward those whom he had chosen. Those to whom he would show his mercy and his compassion. And not even all of those within the chosen nation of Israel were God's true remnant who would truly believe and walk with God. There's no unrighteousness with God in this. And brethren, this is what our flesh immediately comes up with. Hold it. We resist this idea. Isn't this a, a democracy or something? I can cast my vote for God if I want to or I don't want to. Now this evening I'm not going to do an exposition of this, this portion of Scripture. I'm introducing a thought that we're going to follow out through the Scripture and then we'll do some expositions regarding the doctrine of election in the next couple of weeks. But we're just going to introduce ourselves to this subject with... Uh, Two very brief 
personal anecdotes regarding this passage, and then uh, a brief review of some of the words we've looked at the last few weeks, and then bring them all together with something of a survey of the doctrine of election. Our, our title tonight is The Purpose of God According to Election. The years I spent working in a Christian bookstore shortly after my conversion were profoundly educational. From where I stood uh, in our Bible and theology section, I could see people as they entered the store. And once I watched a woman blow in the door with a determined look on her face as if she were on a mission. Boy, she just made a, a beeline straight for the, the Bible counter and uh, immediately, but hurriedly, uh, started flipping through one of the display Bibles we had there, obviously looking for a passage. She came to this one. Arriving at this chapter, uh, or at least the portion of the chapter that I just read, she focused on the words from verse 11 through verse 15, beginning with, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, finishing with, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. She read those out loud, and then she looked up at me and said, Does this mean what it says? I asked, What do you think it means? She answered, it sounds like God chooses some people to salvation. I smiled. I said, that's what it means. And then she said, uh, something that I don't think I'll ever forget, and I might describe her... Uh, her delivery is passionate bewilderment. She said, then why don't preachers preach about this? Well, I gave her my opinion as to what I thought the answer was to that question, and there were numerous conclusions that I gave her. But then she exited the store pretty much the way she blew in. <clears throat> it was the way she said, does this mean what it says that never left me? It was very obvious that after some consideration of the passage, she couldn't escape the force of it. Now my second personal anecdote regarding this was shortly after my conversion I was deeply, deeply distressed and struggling over the issue of election. Having sat in churches for years thinking that I was a Christian and yet a lost man until the Lord in His mercy opened my eyes and brought me to see Him and my desperate need for him, 
<clears throat> I had determined that I wasn't going to become involved in a system anymore. I had sat under a particular theological system for years, and I wasn't going to buy anything that anybody said just because someone with a name said it. I wanted to know from the Word of God, what does your Word say? And I kept running into this word, election. And I kept seeing the words, chosen. And I'd never been taught this. And the more I saw it, the more it nagged at me. I finally called a friend of mine in a... He was a professor, a professor of New Testament. Knew Greek very well. and He was in a seminary uh, teaching. and I didn't know his persuasion at the time. But I had always been moved by his preaching. And, and I called him and I said, I'm really struggling. I'm, I'm deeply struggling. He said, all right, what's, what's your issue? And I said, well, this, this doctrine of election. Now, as the Lord would have it in his providence, this fellow said to me, well, do you believe the Bible? He said, yes, sir. It's in there. I said, that doesn't help me. <laughs> I see the words. I'm struggling with this because this doesn't go along with what I've been taught. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Let's not argue about it. He said, let's, uh, let, let me encourage you to do something. When was the last time you read Romans 9? Well, I've been reading my Bible a lot, but I guess, you know, maybe a few months. He said, but do this. He said, take Romans 9. And he said, don't get a book. Don't get a commentary. He said, take Romans 9. And he said, and get before the Lord. And pray over every word in that chapter. And read all the way through. And then call me back. He also recommended John 6 and Ephesians 1. I think at that time. <clears throat> but I remember Romans 9. And I took exactly what he said and I began to pray over every word and every sentence. And brethren, by the time I got to verse 16... I was angry. And I dropped my head on my desk and I raised my fist. And in the raising of my fist, in anger, it came to me. I know why I'm angry at this passage. Because of all the chapters in the Bible, this one says, He is God, and I'm not, more clearly than any other one. And then I put my fist down and repented and said, You are God. You are God, and I'm not. Now, 
<clears throat> this may not mean much to you. But at those two particular moments in my walk, I found not only why most people are confused about this passage, uh, but why they're also angry when you deal with this subject. By nature, we want at least, at least, at least an atom of say-so in our salvation. I at least had this much to do with it. Yeah, you, you had all the rest. But I, I at least did this. That's what we want. And this chapter takes even that atom away. People by nature don't want to hear how much God is God. And that's one of the reasons why preachers don't preach about that. We live in a day where churches are built on people making decisions rather than God converting sinners. And therefore... <clears throat> Romans chapter 9 is a very important passage. <clears throat> now, having shared those anecdotes, we want to think in review just for a few moments. We've studied the word purpose, which comes from a Greek word that means plan, resolve, will, purpose. And when applied, <clears throat> or when used uh, with God, every place that we found it, it spoke of His eternal purpose of grace in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and it usually speaks of that grace given in Christ to a particular people before the foundation of the world. Now, if you've been with us, you realize we've seen that in those passages. <clears throat> we've also seen that the word purpose is often connected with the words foreknowledge or predestination or as in Romans chapter 8 but with both of them and then we considered the word foreknowledge and its verb foreknow when applied to God and his divine knowledge it means to enter into a relationship with before or to choose or determine before. Or to love before. Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked into the future and chose those that He knew would believe. But it speaks of God's eternal love before time. Foreknowledge in this sense speaks of God's gracious purpose before the foundation of the world to engage in a loving relationship with his people. Following this, we studied the word predestination. Purpose, foreknowledge, predestination. <clears throat> predestination comes from the Greek word prohorizo. Now this is a, a compound word made up of the uh, 
prefix pro, which means beforehand, and horizo, which means to limit or to appoint, to determine. You put them together and you have to determine beforehand. Brethren, when we have a purpose in grace in the Lord Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, where God enters in to loving relationship and predestines people to be His children, we are talking about the decree of God, the sovereign, eternal purpose of God. And that is manifest finally in the word that we take up this evening. Election. Purpose for knowledge. Predestine, or predestination, election. The words that refer to the doctrine of election are, in the New Testament, elect, and actually through the whole Bible, election, choose, chose, chosen. And election usually means either chosen unto service or chosen unto salvation. I have chosen this evening to take us on something of a survey. Because if you just take the word foreknow and foreknowledge, there are not too many passages regarding that. When you take the words that have to do with purpose, they're not a great number, there are several. When you take the words predestined, predestinate, there are not too many passages. But when you take all of those together and then add to them the vocabulary from the Word of God regarding election and choosing, but then there is a mass of Scripture that you cannot ignore. You must deal with what those passages mean. And when you tie them to the purpose of God and the passages that we have looked at, brethren, it is difficult to imagine how anyone can come to any other conclusion, though I know they certainly do, than that God has a sovereign purpose in salvation. Everyone is very happy nowadays to use the word sovereign. It's kind of eked back into the Christian vocabulary uh, to mean that God rules over things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. Yes, God's sovereign. And uh, it's very popular to hear, even among Armenians that are homeschoolers, to say, oh yes, God had a sovereign purpose for America as they read American history. God clearly chose a, a path for them to come and, and to work his great work here in America. But the minute you bring the idea of a sovereign purpose into the realm of salvation, people bristle. It's Cactus City. <clears throat> That's what we're going to talk about. Tonight we do a survey and then we'll take up some <clears throat> of the more important passages uh, in the next week or so and do some expositions from those passages. 
So first, uh, we want to consider the definition of election. And then we want to look at some Old Testament passages regarding election. And then finally, some New Testament passages regarding election. Remember, election has to do either with service to God or salvation. Now, the definition of election, the words both in the Old Testament and the New, <clears throat> can be understood this way. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word expresses the deliberate selection of someone or something after carefully considering the alternatives. This is what the lexical meaning of the word for choosing is. This implies a decided preference for the object chosen. You follow me on that? The, the whole idea is, this isn't some... Uh, ladies, when you go to the store, you don't walk in looking for the things that want to go home with you. Right? You have a determined purpose, and you go and choose the items after your careful consideration of sales, price, happy hubby, and those types of things, correct? There is a conclusion after consideration and an action that follows it. And that's what we have here. This is what the word means. A decided preference for the object chosen. It may even reflect pleasure taken in the object. The, the, the words actually have this connotation. In the New Testament... The Greek word for choosing is always in what we call the middle voice. Now, I'm no Greek scholar. In fact, it would probably be good for me to have Brother Gary come and tell us about the uh, middle voice. But I can tell you this, that what it means when applied to the idea of election is it means to choose out for oneself. The middle voice is, is in Greek, expressive of doing something for one's own self. Amazing how the Lord chose a language that so graphically expresses this, is, this particular action. So, choosing in the New Testament, when especially when it is applied to God, has the idea of God choosing for Himself. Now, what does that mean then? If we've defined it thus, how do we understand this? Well, by election, we mean that according to the counsel of his own will, I hope you hear the scriptural language here, God chose to rescue certain sinners from the guilt, the bondage, and the condemnation of their sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Jesus. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. For he shall save his people from their sins. There is a determined purpose in Christ's coming. And God has chosen to send his Son to save a people. This is not what I'm going to read into the verses. I want you to see that this is what the verses plainly set before us. <clears throat> now there are those, it's interesting, over the years who have said to me, Ah, 
if God chooses some people for salvation and He leaves others in their sins, that makes Him a respecter of persons. Now you'll hear that or you have heard that. But there is a very clear answer to that and it's not a, uh, it's not a snappy answer but it's the answer. And plainly and simply is it's no. If you believe that God looked down before He created all things and looked down into the future and chose those that He knew would believe, that makes Him a respecter of persons. Because He's choosing on the basis of what they're going to do. Grace is all wrapped up in God's infinite wisdom and the mystery of His love. It is not based on the person or what he's going to do as the middle voice helps point to it is all wrapped up in God's sovereign choice for himself not in the object that he chooses Also, to say, well, God looked down and saw and then made his plan is to say that God's sovereign so-called purpose is based on what men's wills are going to do. Not on what God has purpose to do, but history is all based on what men are going to do. This is not on account of any foreseen merit in them. But salvation is only because of God's sovereign good pleasure. And this is what the scriptures tell us. God's election is according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. And it is rooted in the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Every single word here is vital and important as we unfold this. So let's look at some of the Old Testament passages and then the New Testament passages. If we don't get finished with these tonight, we'll just continue next week. This is a fairly informal study here on Wednesday evenings anyway. <clears throat> now, in the Old Testament, the first thing that we want to point out is that God chose Christ to be the Lord and Savior of His people. And this idea of God sovereignly choosing is all through the Scriptures, either to service or to salvation. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Now this is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to guess about this, because Matthew chapter 12, verse 17, applies it directly to the Lord Jesus, and then says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have, and it's translated in the New Testament, chosen. Christ the elect, Christ the chosen. The Lord Jesus Christ was chosen by His Father. Or I should say it this way, at least not to be anachronistic. The eternal Son was chosen by the Father to be the Savior 
of his people. And he is referred to as the elect, the chosen. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And that is echoed over and over and over in the New Testament scriptures at his baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus Christ fulfilled this glorious choice. And what did he say? I came to do my Father's will. Of all those whom he gave me, I shall lose nothing. Nothing. Jesus was chosen, and the people were given to him. He, as the chosen and the beloved Son of God, came to gather up those who were given to him. First Peter Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus, chapter 2, verse 6, says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. The Lord Jesus is elect. He is chosen of God. His Holy Father loved him and chose him and delighted in him and gave him a people gave him a bride. Not only that, in the outworking of this glorious purpose in which Christ was chosen, God chose Abraham to be the father of an elect seed. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7 sums it up this way. Thou art the Lord the God who didst choose Abraham and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. How was it that Abraham became the father of this great nation? God loved him before the foundation of the world. He foreknew him. According to his purpose, he chose Abraham. And he invaded time and space and history. And in his glorious covenant revelation, entered into that love before time with Abraham in history. I will make of you a great nation. And I will raise up a seed Who was that seed? The elect, the chosen one in whom the Father delighted. Anyone sense any purpose here? A few nodding smiles. All right, God also chose Israel to be his covenant people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee. Brother, not a hint anywhere of people saying, Oh, I'd like to be God's. It's not there. Alright, who among you pagans would like to serve the Lord? God's looking for a nation. It's not there. God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Particular. A special people unto Himself points to the New Testament and its middle voice, chosen for Himself. The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you for knowledge and election, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, 
and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. What was that oath? The promise that God made to chosen Abraham. He says, I didn't love you because you were wonderful people. I didn't set my love upon you. What? He set his love upon an unlovable people. Why did he do that? Because he chose to. He chose them and set his love upon them. It certainly, brethren, wasn't because he looked down through history and saw that they were going to be a wonderful people. They were a stiff-necked people. Psalm 33, verse 12. One of the reasons we read that chapter as we began this evening. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom He hath chosen for His inheritance. Now you can be chosen by God and not saved. Israel was God's chosen nation. But you see, this is what Paul finally understood. And that's why he wrote Romans 9. He said, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. God has a purpose according to election. Isaiah 45, verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I gave you a name. I chose you and I gave you my name. Well, not only that, God chose individuals for important roles relating to His purpose. There are numerous examples of people and places that God chooses for His service according to this wonderful purpose. Prophets, priests, kings, nations, events... <clears throat> Moses was chosen as prophet. Psalm 106.23 Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. Aaron was chosen as priest. Psalm 105.26 He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. Why would the tribes of Dan, the tribes of Benjamin, the tribes, uh, any of the other tribes, priests? Because God did not choose them. And He abominated it when they made their own priests. God's choosing is important. He chose King David. 2 Chronicles 6, 6. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Why was David the king? Because the shepherd boy was very, very popular. He gathered enough money to get into the primaries. He got enough of the tribes to back him. They loved his platform. Vote for the man who took down Goliath. No, it didn't happen that way. God sent the prophet and said, 
No, not this one. No, not this one. No, not this one. Anoint this one. I chose him. Brethren, there's no more humbling doctrine in the Scripture. God is God. He chose the tribe of Levi for the priesthood, as I've already uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy 18.5. For the Lord thy God hath chosen him out of all thy tribes. Do you hear that particularism? Out of the tribes. Twelve tribes. I take Levi. To stand a minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. As we've already read, <clears throat> Jerusalem was chosen as the holy city. 1 Kings 11.36 And unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. I have chosen because that's where I wanted it. No one asked him where he was going to put his name. He just said, now when you come into the land, the city where I put my name, that's where you come and worship me. He chose that place. Well, let's look at some New Testament passages and then we'll close for the evening. <clears throat> God chose individuals for important roles relating to his purpose, just like he did in the Old Testament. He chose the apostles as the foundation of the church. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve. This one, not that one. This one, not that one. Whom also he called or named apostles. John fifteen sixteen. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit. Why did these men go out and change the world? Because Christ chose them. Why them? Ask God. It wasn't because they were bright. Have I been so long with you, so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Mom, go in there and give him, give him a word for us. We want to sit on the right hand and on the left side. Go, go work that out for us. He feeds 5,000. And then when he's feeding 4,000, where are we going to get food for this? They weren't chosen because they were the, the most intellectual men around. They were chosen because God loved them and chose them. He had a purpose. He didn't choose Israel because they were a wonderful group of people. And friend, He didn't choose you because there's anything wonderful in you. In Acts chapter 1 verse 2 it says, Until the day in which He was taken up, after that He through the Holy Ghost had given, a co given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen. He chose His own betrayer. John 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. <clears throat> Just to make sure that we know that wasn't some kind of mistake that he figured out later. 
In John 13, verse 18, he says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Here's the chosen within the chosen. In other words, I know whom I've chosen for life, and I also know who the devil is. He chose all twelve. One was the son of perdition. Chose them all to be his apostles. He chose eleven of them unto life. I know whom I have chosen. And the word know there points back to that intimate union. Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, Acts 9, verse 15, 9, verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. The early church couldn't even believe that Saul of Tarsus loved Jesus Christ. They had to be convinced. Jesus went to Ananias. Go, you'll find him on a street called Straight. Lord, this is the guy that's been persecuting the church. He's mine. I chose him. Acts 22, verse 14. Ananias, when Paul was speaking of Ananias coming to him, he recounts that he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee. The God of our fathers hath chosen thee that thou shouldest know His will and see that just one. This is why Paul could say all of his days, I am what I am by grace. I'm the least. I'm the chief of sinners. But God chose me. Put me into His service. Well, lest our time get away from us, let's say that this evening we'll close with the fact that the witnesses of Christ's life, death, and resurrection were chosen. Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, And we are his witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people. Listen carefully. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God. Even to us who did eat and drink with Him after He rose from the dead. God has a purpose. He foreknows His people. He has predestined and chosen. He's chosen people to His service. He's chosen people unto salvation. He's chosen kings and priests and prophets and places. He chooses the time when things come to pass. And He chooses a people for His Son. We'll take up those passages next week, but they will be under these headings that God chose the church to be His royal priesthood priesthood and His holy nation, and God chose the individuals unto salvation. I close with this verse. 
we'll spend more time on it next week. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Why do we fight for this doctrine? Why will we stand for this doctrine when it costs us friends, popularity, church members? First, because it's true. But most of all, because it gives all the glory of salvation to God and His mercy, grace, and love. Those who come to know the God of heaven and earth and understand that it was His grace say, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. They say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The blood of Christ shed upon the cross is to be preached to every creature. Christ Himself said, many are called, but few are chosen. Can we understand this? No. But we believe it because it is all through the Scriptures. God has a sovereign purpose. He's working it out in time and space and history through His people, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it will end with the glorious manifestation of the sons of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.